Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now, here's your host. Hi, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. Our podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, a leading ABA provider serving families across the country. I'm your host, Katherine Johnson. Roy Richard Grinker was supposed to have been the fourth generation in a long line of psychoanalysts. Instead, he chose the field of social anthropology and today is a professor of anthropology and international affairs at George Washington University in Washington, DC. He is also father to a woman with autism and author of many books, including the one we're talking about today, Nobody's Normal, How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness. We pride ourselves on having a variety of different voices and perspectives on this podcast. And I really enjoyed this conversation because it was from a vantage point I don't think we've ever had on the show, which is that of an anthropologist. I loved hearing his viewpoints on autism, neurodiversity, and how other cultures view mental health, and most of all, how to combat stigma. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Richard Grinker. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I must tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed your book. And I think that it comes at a really perfect time because our society seems to be undergoing this like seismic shift in perspective. And in the face of this movement toward greater understanding of and acceptance of differences, your book brings in a historical context of how previous societies and actually also how current cultures, other cultures uh, view and treat mental illness. And I just wanted to thank you for putting out all of this amazing information, because I have to say so much of it was brand new to me. And I think that it's stuff that people who work in mental health really should know. So I'm recommending that our listeners put this on their list. Well, thanks so much. Uh, Nobody's Normal was many years in the making. And um, I'm I'm proud of it. And I think that uh, there are a lot of take home messages for people, not just on the spectrum, but um, who have dealt with any disability and particularly any disability that comes with any kind of moral judgment that Mm -hmm. one is aware of or trying to avoid. Agreed. Um, I'd like to start actually with how you chose the field of cultural anthropology, because that Uh, was the career that your family expected. No, no, that's true. (laughs) You know, my, my great grandfather was a psychiatrist and neurologist. My grandfather was a psychiatrist and neurologist. My father was a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. My wife is a psychiatrist. (laughs) All roads were leading in that direction. And, um, I have to say that I um, I idealized my father and my grandfather so much. Never met my great great grandfather. He passed away in the 1920s. Um, I idealized them so much. I actually didn't want to compete with them. I mean, I didn't want to. They would say things like, "Oh, you're going to be a psychiatrist, Rich. I'd be six years old. You know? You're going to be a psychiatrist, and you're going to be a better psychiatrist than we are." And um, I promptly did poorly in science classes. 
Too much did, pressure. Yeah, but he did great in English and history yeah. and these uh-huh. other other fields. And um, I liked to write even, you know, as a child. So um, the wonderful thing about cultural anthropology for me when I discovered it in college was that it provided a perspective that you couldn't find anywhere else. And mm-hmm. And when I say you couldn't find it anywhere else, I mean, you couldn't find it at home. You had to go away to get the anthropological perspective. And a lot of people think that anthropology is really about understanding other cultures. And Mm -hmm. it is, but that's just half of it. The other half is understanding other cultures and then coming home to your own society and seeing it change, seeing it in a new light. You know, like when you go to Europe and you notice the streets are so narrow and the cars are so small and you come home and you say, wow, our cars are so big and our streets are so big. You see things in a way that you never saw them before. And that's given me a perspective on psychiatry, on mental illness, and, um, and very much so on autism. One of the things that you talk about in your book that caused me to see things differently was the story about um, how the DSM came about. And I think since our podcast is um, about things that are sort of related to autism, our listeners are very familiar with the DSM. Um, and I think it's it's fascinating why and how it happened. Can you tell us the story? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, you're, you're asking me about the first one, the very, yeah, very, the very first, first DSM. One. Yeah, the very was not called the DSM. What was it called? It was called the... Uh... Well, there, the, the first DSM was the DSM-1, but it was itself an adaptation of a previous manual that I'll tell you about. I mean, so so the, the, the history of the mental health professions and, and also the study of developmental disabilities is one that's like a roller coaster. It's, it ebbs and flows. And sometimes people are doing all of this research and thinking about mental illnesses and developmental disabilities is important. And then there are other times in our history where we hide it. We don't talk about it. We don't think it has much of a prevalence. And what World War II did and World War I as well is that it showed for the first time, just how common mental disorders were. And that people who suffered from the traumas of war or from mental illnesses, just because they're human beings during wartime, were not considered to be abnormal men or women. They were considered to be normal men and women in abnormal circumstances. But nonetheless, doctors thought you know, this is a lot of, of mental illness. 25% of all discharges in World War II were for mental illnesses. 25%. That's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, right? So after the war, Harry Truman says, we better do something about this. We can leverage what we've learned in the war to make some real progress. He founds the DSM, uh, the uh, NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health. Mm-hmm. He then tells uh, uh, get uh, promotes fundraising for psychiatry programs in universities and psychology programs too, particularly with psychological testing. And now to answer your question, he orders the Navy to adapt the Army Manual of Mental Disorders called Medical 203 into something for the civilian population. And that became the DSM-1. And so when people don't pay attention to military history or military psychiatry, they make a big mistake because so much of what we think about today in terms of in mental health, but also developmental disabilities comes from the military. 
um, which is not to say war is good, but it is to say that wars aren't just aberrations in our lives. They, they can change things. They can be productive in a, um, in a way that we didn't anticipate. And I thought it was so interesting. One of the things that you said about it, and, and I'm obviously paraphrasing here, so correct me if I get anything wrong, um, is that within the DSM, it's basically um, a list of things that we can't, a, a list of illnesses that we can't explain. Because once you can explain it by a cause or by you identify a gene, it comes out of the DSM. That's right. Everything with, with, with very few exceptions, everything in the DSM is a condition without a known cause. And I feel like that's just such a good illustration of one of the major points that you make in the book, which is that this naming of and categorization of mental suffering is largely of our own invention. Well, this is why we can't look at some of these things and say, oh, well, that's real. That that is a that is a condition that we know exists in the same way that we know that like a blockage of an artery is real. Mm -hmm. And so um, what we have in the DSM are frameworks and diagnostic frameworks that one hopes will be beneficial. And we use those frameworks if they're beneficial. I think Asperger's is a great example for this, right? Because Asperger's Mm -hmm was in the DSM briefly. It was in the, you know, 1994 to 2013. And um, the doctors will tell you that the reason Asperger's came out of the DSM was because even the most reliable neuropsych testers couldn't um, reliably distinguish between subtypes of autism. But the reality is that any of these things are just frameworks for helping us understand ourselves. And Asperger's was needed at a time when parents and educators really desperately wanted a term for autism that was for people who didn't have language delay and who mm-hmm. were perhaps, um, you know, uh, very, very, um, uh, uh, promising in school and, you know, what we sometimes have referred to as higher functioning. That was a word that was introduced for that because the word autism was just so stigmatizing and indexed a very, um, you know, one part of the population of more sort of seriously involved people, um, including people who might need 24-7 care. And, but once we destigmatized autism, once the neurodiversity movement really got going and, you yeah, know, yeah. We, we destigmatized it, everybody was okay with the word autism and we didn't need that word Asperger's anymore. And it's not that scientists made mistakes or were stupid or anything like that. It's that um, these things do their job, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a quote in the book and it's, I also have the quote in Unstrange Minds, my previous book in which Judy Rappaport said, who was a you know, very rigorous child psychiatrist who ran child psychiatry at um, uh, NIMH for years said, oh, you know, I'll, I'm a rigorous scientist. I'm only going to follow, you know, the, the the rules and the criteria and the DSM. But when it comes to um, my patients, I'll call a kid a zebra if that will get that kid into the right classroom. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that sort of brings us to environments and um, 
I, I know you, you write and you talk a lot about your daughter, Isabel, who had an Asperger's diagnosis. No, um, never had an Asperger's diagnosis. Oh, Asperger's. No. Was it autism? Never. Mm-hmm. Always autism. Got it. Oh, okay. But actually, I want to ask you about your other daughter, Olivia, because yeah. there's a quote in your book um, that I think she was in college, maybe even in high school. And I'm just so blown away by this, where she's interviewing her grandfather about... Uh, it was in college. She was in college. Yeah. College for, for a paper. And she basically says, if pain is caused by the community's moral system or like judgment how can that pain be considered a mental illness? And I think um, it, it, that also brought to mind the story about Martha's Vineyard um, and actually so much of what you've written. I don't know if there's if there's a particular well, favorite story what that you have that you'd like to share on that topic. What you're really pointing out is that um, my daughter, even in college, um, Olivia had been able to identify what she didn't know by this name, but but what we now call the social model of disability, mm-hmm. you know, like exactly. saying that, you know, a person who is differently mobile and uses a wheelchair isn't disabled if there are ramps and accessibility. Mm-hmm. And the people in Martha's Vineyard who had hereditary deafness weren't disabled either, since everybody spoke sign language. Mm-hmm. And what this conversation was that she was having with her 90, then 90 year old grandfather was that he was saying that he uh, he treated so many very depressed, anxious um, gay men and women in his psychiatric practice. And he thought that that homosexuality caused pain. And she said, well, why do you think homosexuality causes pain? Isn't it society's moral judgment Mm -hmm. that causes them pain? And why would they be going to a psychiatrist anyway if they were happy? So you're only going to see... (laughs) I love You're only going to see those folks. Um, but, you know, it's funny that you bring up that topic, too. I don't mean to change the topic or go off on no. a tangent. But go recently, recently, somebody did um, at a, a medical school lecture I gave said, you know, but there are objective things we can see as mm-hmm. psychiatrists. Like you can see them and you know they're real. And then and how can we be critical of these constructs? And I brought up homosexuality. Yeah. In my answer, because that was at the time of my my father, my grandfather's training considered to be a, a reliable and valid diagnosis. And you could if you had a patient in your office who identified as gay, you could get a hundred, a thousand or a hundred thousand doctors in there and they would all agree. Yes, that person's gay. That doesn't make it a useful construct that doesn't make homosexuality a mental illness, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, my, my son during COVID um, remote schooling wasn't working. And so we put him in a small alternative school and all of a sudden he's learning, he's happy and he doesn't need an IEP in this environment. Wow. What happens to his diagnoses? Does he still have his diagnoses? It really shed light uh, for me on this idea that what society demands or what our culture approves of is what makes like a difference into a disability or a mental illness. Yes. And that is why we have the power as members of societies, we humans have the power to change stigma mm-hmm. because it's not something that's just there, you know, in, in nature, it's something that, that we create. And so in, you know, to refer to some things I talk about in Nobody's Normal, you know, when you when when you frame ADHD for a kid in Brazil in a poor community as 
um, somewhat understandable given the fact that he's suffering in poverty and in a society with gross inequalities. They're able to um, accept and understand that diagnosis is not stigmatized, but is expectable and is reasonable. And so, of course, I'm having trouble um, paying attention in school because this is the kind of world that I live in. And then they'll accept medication or all, you know, you get the same medication then that the doctor wants you to, but it's framed in a way that makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. Similarly, in Japan, when people think about depression these days as the result of the intense competition that uh, people have to get into colleges and to get jobs, the intense uh, mm -hmm. hours of taking care of an aging population, then that makes sense. If we see mm -hmm. how w whenever we conceptualize uh, a disability as something that is related to the world in which we live, then we reduce stigma. We could say it more simply and say when society takes some of the blame mm -hmm. and, you know, boy, look at the history of autism. You know, when we blamed mothers, right? we blamed if we, you know, uh, if we conceive of autism only in negative terms and blame biology, mm -hmm. we don't end up with a very good situation. And I'm trying to point out, you know, some of this stuff in the book so that people can feel like they do have the power to change. I love that. And I love there. You have so many examples and have had so many personal experiences inside of these cultures in which mental illness is less stigmatized. And I was wondering if you could share some of your favorite um, anecdotes from um, different cultures that you've been in, similar to the ADHD in Brazil example that you just gave. You know, I give historical examples, such as the people who were um, had developmental disabilities and who were in residential institutions before mm -hmm. World War II and then left the residential institutions to join the army, become sergeants and mechanics. And then after the war was over, went back into the residential institution. Oh but, um, yeah, I've had these experiences in other cultures, too, where you see um, very inspiring um, situations and particularly when you have. Uh, children and adults with autism or other disabilities that are living in, in extended families in large communities um, where they're not expected to be, you know, like the independent capitalist autonomous producer that de Tocqueville wrote about for the ideal mm -hmm. American. Um, so I met this one little boy named Geshe and Geshe is nonverbal and he um, is, is sort of, you know, would be your kind of uh, an obvious case of, of, of autism, I would think, for a clinician if they saw him. I'm not a clinician, but just giving you my impression. Okay. Um, and um, Geshe's parents, I asked if they'd ever taken him to the doctor, and they said, no, well, he's not sick. Um, we haven't taken him to the doctor for this because um, it, he, he, well, he once had measles, and, and we took him to the doctor for that. But they were just so proud of him because he was um, one of the best goat herders in the village. Um, he also had an uncanny ability to remember where people put things. And so if, if tools That's were lost, amazing. if tools were lost, he would find them. Um, and, and then I asked him this question that I always criticize people for asking me. And, you know, every autistic parent is asked this at some point, will your child live independently one day? Mm -hmm. 
And I, and then I, I'm kicking myself because I asked him that question too, the father. And he said, why would he ever do that? Why would he ever live in? Because that just wouldn't make sense. You know, that would be very strange. Yeah. (laughs) Would someone live without their family? And I said, I said, yeah, but one day you and your wife will die. And he said, yeah. And I said, and then what will he do? And he said, well, you mean everyone's going to die in the village? Like he just couldn't make sense of what I was saying. And it was important to me to, to hear those things and to, yeah. to see those kinds of examples, because um, I'm not saying that Geshe is not never bullied. I'm not sh- saying that Geshe doesn't suffer, but he's, um, he's not considered an outcast. Mm-hmm. He's not marginalized. He's considered an important and essential part of the community. He has a place there. Mm-hmm. That sort of brings up you. You mentioned capitalism, and I think, you know, you 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 come back to that that theme a lot in your book about sort of how what our society expects of us, and it seems to me that we have sort of like created a lot of disabilities, created a lot of mental illnesses, just by virtue of what our society expects of us. We want people to be autonomous. We want people to be productive. We want people to be working at things that make money. And so I, I'm just wondering, you know, since we are in this culture that we are in, and yet we have models of other cultures, like the one that you just mentioned, where people are valued for their strengths, not necessarily for, you know, not necessarily put into a box of having to have specific strengths in order to have worth. Um, What, how, how do we get from here to there? How do, how do we change a culture? Well, I think it's very hard um, to achieve change, but when we identify what it is that we need to change, then at least we're taking a step in the right direction. If we just tell people, don't stigmatize, that doesn't do anything. We need to find out what the source of stigma is. And if the source of stigma is that our ideal individual is a maximizer producing, living independently and autonomous and accountable only to themselves, um, then we need to attack that because not only does that hurt people with disabilities, but it hurts people who might have incredibly uh, meaningful careers that are devalued in that kind of social system. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of single um, uh, stay-at-home parents. Yeah. If you're a stay-at-home parent, I mean, you're not, or you're not Mm -hmm. producing wealth, in the bank account, if you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, does that mean you're disabled? Well, in our society, in effect, it does. What does it say about somebody who wants to become an artist or wants to do volunteer work? And what does it say about a person with a disability who loves a job that we consider to be low status or their families consider to be low status? I'm thinking of a, a girl that... Um, and, her, and her family that I interviewed, where um, the mother is just so deeply unhappy that her daughter um, is a grocery bagger uh, mm-hmm. at a grocery store in their neighborhood. Um, but I have to tell you, this this young woman loves bagging groceries. She loves it. She loves it because she's got structure. Uh, she's good at it. 
Um, she gets lots of positive reinforcement. She has the same clientele pretty much that she sees and people know her by name. I mean, she has such a meaningful life. She's out and working and has a social network at at work. Um, and you know, this is the kind of thing that people with autism couldn't have had very much Mm -hmm. in the past. And so, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, I was, I don't know what I was going to say. It's just that, um, you know, and unfortunately, the many of the positive media images we have of uh, people with autism leading meaningful lives are things like the good doctor and, uh, you know, the rich Silicon Valley, you know, awkward yeah. person. And that's one kind of person. But most pe- that's not most people with autism. And we should be able to value other forms of life. your example of the woman who loves to be a grocery bagger because as we have just seen in the pandemic that's an essential worker yes you know that's she she if she can those were the jobs that sort of kept the lines of production going and kept kept people um you know able to i I know kept kept society going i know and i mean just to to bring it home to my own daughter um she um, was considered an essential worker during the pandemic mm-hmm. because she takes care of mice and um, other rodents in an animal research lab. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's essential. Yeah. And those mice and those rabbits and whatever needed her. Mm-hmm. And it's not a, you know, it's not a job that a lot of people like working with rodents is a lot of cleaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be incredibly noisy too, if you've got enough of them in a single place, (laughs) but she loves it. She absolutely loves it. And it's not a job that a lot of other people want, but she loves it and she's really good at it. And she's so proud of, of what she does. And how many people who are successful by our culture standards really hate their jobs and are unhappy doing what they, you know, doing what they do every day. It's such a, yeah. Such I mean, a, I should say wonderful thing. I should say that there, you know, there is a reality here of, of the, of needing money. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, I am able, she is able to, she lives with us, but she's able to have this job and, um, and make, make money. But she also, I think has, you know, she, she, she has money from us helping support her too. And so that is something that she has that, not all people with disabilities have. And so I do recognize that, that privilege. Yeah. I mean, I think that that, that sort of goes along with um, one of the things that you talk about in your book, which is that, uh, you know, this, this idea that um, people need to be productive in a certain way is not endemic to, you know, us as humans, this is because of a culture and because of a society we have created um, and it's not, it, it does not speak to her worth as a human. It speaks to just the decisions and the values that, that our culture has, has determined are, um, are paramount right now. Exactly. And I, and I think that, um, what, 
many um, advocates are doing, um, particularly in in the you know neurodiversity movement, if you want to mm-hmm. call it that, is um, is saying, you know what, we are going to say what our value is, and we're not going right. to let let you all decide what it is. Yeah. Um, we're gonna we're gonna say that that we are valuable for X or Y, and that we have mm-hmm. strengths. And we have challenges, but every human being has strengths and challenges. The and pandemic has been, oh, sorry. No, I was going to say that kind of a, that kind of a celebration um, of, of what we can do and how we can forge out meaningful lives is, is, mm-hmm. is crucial and has been a great part of what I see as the reduction of stigma in recent years. And what can clinicians do? Um, what can parents do to sort of help you know, help continue this momentum of destigmatizing um, conditions that were previously um, considered to be, um, you know, disorders. Well, I think I think self advocacy is really key, mm-hmm. and um, it's important to understand that we may need people to help people learn to advocate. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when in a lecture class. You know, uh, in my my intro class, lecture class, a man stands up in front of 290 students, mm-hmm. uh, another student, and says, "I'm a student in the class. It's the first day of class. I have Tourette's syndrome. I'm telling you this because, you know, I might say something out of the blue, and it might be, you might even surprise you, or be potentially even offensive. But I'm letting you know that I have Tourette's disorder." And he completely, by that, you know, disclosure and by that statement. Um, takes away the ability of anybody to see him as weird or bizarre because now they understand because they learned what Tourette's was in high school, probably, or wherever. And But that man didn't just do that out of the blue. Somebody had to help him learn how to say that, that it was okay to say that. You had to have a university where a professor was open to a student saying that. Before he gets to the university, you've got to have a parent or somebody tell him that it's okay to say that, Mm -hmm. that 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 is a strategy. And so we need to build on that. It's really something that I, um, I know isn't something that comes easy for everybody. I am very comfortable sitting in a room of people with ties and jackets and suits and dresses and whatever and talking, you know, about whatever. But not everybody's comfortable with that. And, you know, I was thinking of this a lot when I was advocating through the years for my daughter in special ed, which is, you know, a major battle always. And I was thinking, wow, I'm so I'm having such a hard time. What if English was not my first language? What if I was a, a recent immigrant to the United States and I was unfamiliar with how things work here? Or, or, or what if I had a disability? Mm-hmm. Would I be able to help my daughter advocate in the same way? But, but I think that we're seeing a lot of progress at the individual level, family level, and also even at the academic level where we have things like queer studies and crip studies, um, mm-hmm. fat studies, where uh, academics are pushing to have uh, to kind of reclaim mm-hmm. the words that used to hurt and redefine yeah. them by themselves. With regard to the neurodiversity movement, I feel like the pandemic has really it, it had a big it played a big role in sort of um, folks with autism 
being able to stay home. And for those who were able to work remotely, finding that they could work remotely and experience a, you know, a degree less of anxiety. Um, everyone was connecting online. So there wasn't this, um, this pressure to be in person and to show these specific social skills and to look people in the eye. Um, yeah, where that's what, where that's really had a positive impact is with kids, um, you know, high school, college, middle school kids who might've been so anxious during the day at school. Mm-hmm. Um, if they are autistic and spend so much energy trying to read social cues and figure out if they're being bullied or not. And, Mm -hmm. and I mean, it's just, they'd come home, you know, a lot of kids come home from school. So exhausted by the social stress that all they can do is play video games and, you know, Mm -hmm. try to de-stress, um, the remote platforms like zoom involve a bit of awkwardness for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so it is kind of levels the playing field a little, but there've been some negative consequences too, that have been uh, really pronounced, uh, particularly for kids where uh, their parental capacity is not there to help take care of them at home. The parents have to work Mm -hmm. or if there's one parent and that everything's, you know, shouldered by that one person uh, where uh, there has to be a sibling, perhaps, that helps take care of that person with a disability mm-hmm. or where a parent didn't really have the emotional resources themselves to be able to weather some of the stresses of the pandemic. And we are seeing reports from some clinicians that there are kids who are going to residential institutions because mm-hmm. of increased irritability and aggressivity um, as the result of um, the pandemic and the loss of the structures of special mm-hmm. education uh, programs that were not going to special. They, they And the clinicians say, well, they probably wouldn't have had to go to residential institutions if not for this pandemic. Yeah. So it's case by case, yeah. you know, and it is across the board, uh, very complicated, but you know, COVID is kind of like the wars that I write about in Nobody's Normal. They are global. COVID's a global stressor. And in times of war, and many political leaders have called COVID a war, in times of war, experiencing stress, experiencing anxiety, depression, mental illness in general becomes almost expectable. And you're not weak or fragile if you say, nobody thinks you're weak or fragile if you say that you're, you've been having a really hard time during the pandemic. Right. Right. It's like it's like yeah. it's become reasonable. And that's what ha- has happened mm-hmm. in wars, too. And so when the line the sort of, you know, silver lining behind these global stressors is that they sometimes do help us to understand suffering as not something that's caused by an individual's failures or an individual's weaknesses, but rather by the broader environment in which mm-hmm. we're living. Beautifully said. I would love it. There is a a portion of your book. um, You wrap your book up with it where you um, quote from Hawthorne. And I was wondering if you could read a section of that, um, because I think it's a a beautiful, beautiful illustration of that sort of notion of reclaiming um, the words that originally were meant to hurt Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to read that for you. Um, I mean, I can, I'll set the stage. This is an 18, a novel from 1850. 
by Nathaniel Hawthorne, which is about the Puritans. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people would expect in an autism podcast that we're going to be talking about adultery in the Puritan times from a novel by Nathaniel <laughs> Hawthorne. But You've got but some I, former English majors that are yeah. really excited right now, I'm sure. Well, or any former high school students, since I think everybody reads The Scarlet Letter at some point. Yeah. Um, here I go. There is a remarkable passage at the end of Nathaniel Hawthorne's 1850, The Scarlet Letter, when after a long absence, Hester Prynne returns to the scene of her crime. As her punishment for adultery, she had worn an embroidered red letter A on her breast. But after all those years, not even the harshest judge would force her to continue wearing it. She decides of her own free will to keep it fastened to her blouse because, the narrator tells us, quote, the scarlet letter ceased to be a stigma which attracted the world's scorn and bitterness and became a type of something to be sorrowed over and looked upon with awe, yet with reverence too. The village now saw her as a source of comfort and strength, not as a person stained with sin. When people suffered the dreary burden of a heart, especially in matters of love or misplaced passion, they visited her cottage for counsel. They knew Hester would understand their pain. The goal of the punishment was to marginalize Hester from society. But by claiming adultery for herself, as if with the pride of a 21st century LGBTQ advocate who has reclaimed the word queer from the bigots, she makes the letter a mark of dignity and experience rather than of shame. Both Hester's original stigma and its transformation into a sign of self-worth derived from her ongoing struggle between her individual character and her society's expectations, a struggle Hester embraced by returning to her community. The question for us is whether we can win our own struggle and take ownership of the words and practices that exclude and discriminate. The many victories described in this book suggest that we can. And I love that you know, so much. Thank you. It, it really is important that to me to make this point about reclaiming the words and uh, that, that have been used to hurt. And it's one reason why I'm actually not critical of the colloquial uses of terms like PTSD, autism, OCD. You know, sometimes people, when they uh, say they're neat, they really like things to be neat. They say, oh, I'm a little OCD about my right. room, my, my apartment, or yes. somebody might say, Oh, I've got PTSD from that econ exam or whatever it is. And you have people who say like Jerry Seinfeld says he's autistic. And yet, you know, the doctors will look at that and say, Jerry Seinfeld would not qualify for a diagnosis of autism. Right. Um, don't minimize it. Right. Don't minimize it. Um, and I don't think that Jerry Seinfeld, when he uses the word autism is saying that autism doesn't also have a presentation which involves intellectual disability, self-injurious behaviors, catatonia sometimes, and where people need sometimes lifelong residential care. When the student talks about having PTSD from an exam, they're not ignoring just how debilitating and painful um, PTSD can be from all sorts of, of, of violence and other forms of trauma. Mm -hmm. But what they are doing is they're saying, we are all on a spectrum of something mm -hmm. that we live on a spectrum that and by using these terms they are inviting all of humanity to say that we are not 
all, you know, we are not all distinct and totally different, right. that we all share these things more or less so. And I think it disarms those words. I love that. And I had never really looked at it in that way before, but really when, when people say those things, they are in some manner drawing a line from something that was considered a stigmatizing difference in someone else to their own personal experience. So, you know, raises an interesting question, which is, you know, if, if we, we see things on this big spectrum, do we need to have other terms? Do we need to invent other terms that index where one is on that spectrum? Right. You know, um, there are, for example, do we need a new word for autism that denotes the person who is, um, uh, who, who is nonverbal? Mm -hmm. Do we need that? Mm -hmm. or, or not. And, you know, this is, we've, we've moved in a direction where we've gotten rid of some of these uh, uh, kind of categorical terms. And we got rid of the categorical terms because they don't allow us to see how much people change over time. Mm -hmm. And uh, they don't account for, for the spectrum. Um, I mean, Asperger's, no psychiatric tester, could ever reliably distinguish between subtypes of autism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we and used I think it because we felt we needed it at a particular time. We don't need mm -hmm. it so much anymore. So, I mean, this I'm not I don't have an answer to this question. I'm just sort yeah. of raising it with you as a query. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I think you know, as a clinician, my gut response is it, the diagnosis is only useful if it helps you determine what is helpful to the person. Um, and whether or not a diagnosis is helpful to the person, I think that that's a, a long discussion in and of itself. And I think um, it varies by yeah. type of type of difference. Well, and, and, and what is going to benefit somebody um, with one? You know, the, the diagnoses aren't um, one size fits all either. So even if you had a very specific diagnosis, like we mm -hmm. if we had it like, you know, autism subtype one, two point five or something. Right. Not every person with that diagnosis is going to need the same thing. Exactly. Even if it's really, really specific. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I don't know, you know, the jury's out on that. We'll see. Um, I think that what we have seen over the course of the history of mental health and the study of developmental disabilities is a kind of seesaw where sometimes we get more general and sometimes we get more specific and, mm -hmm. and we'll see what, we'll see what happens in the future. We will see. Richard, this has been enlightening. I'm so happy to have gotten to talk to you. Thanks that was a pleasure. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I so enjoyed this conversation with Richard Grinker. My big takeaway from all of the topics we discussed was just a feeling of hopefulness that we as a society continue to learn from the past and from other cultures. And that through our own awareness and advocacy, we can help society evolve in how we treat one another and more effectively support those who need it. You can listen to our other episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. We appreciate your reviews and ratings if you're so inclined. If you have show ideas or a question for us, email us at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com or find us on Instagram or Facebook at, at Autism Therapies.
Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.